Hey, welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. Today, I am super excited because we've got one of my favorite writers and humans on the show, a true literary force of nature, Sam Lipsight. That's right, Sam Lipsight's in the house. Now, is Sam the best writer in America? Well, that's not for me to say, but I can tell you this much. There's nobody better. As you all know, this podcast is dedicated to truth tellers. And for his truth telling and the rhetorical prowess of his heart shattering sentences, I've long thought of Sam as a kind of George Carlin of American literature. On the page, he's fearless, hilarious, wise, and tender. And today on the show, we get into it. I talked to Sam about his recent nonfiction piece in The New Yorker, A Lesson for the Sub, in which he writes about taking classes with the legendary editor Gordon Lish and what he learned from Lish about writing sentences and how Lish's teaching influenced Sam, who today is a prof in the MFA program at Columbia University. Then, we discuss Sam's recent novel, No One Left to Come Looking for You, which is arguably the definitive Gen X novel about a wised up and griefed up young indie rocker who gets swept up in one freaky ass week in the early 90s in New York City. This book is, as they say, chef's kiss. Then we discuss Sam's fabulous new novella, A Friend of the Pod about, you guessed it, a podcast. So please join me now as we enter the mind and heart of one of the great artists and human beings of our time, Sam Lipsight. I thought I would just start and read um, a lesson for the sub, or at least a little bit of it, uh, to give people an idea. This, do you want to kind of tell them what this is a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the New Yorker asked me to write. Uh, well, it's funny. Originally, the idea was the theme of these. There are the four or five sidebars that were going in the New Yorker's fiction issue. Uh, initially, the theme I think was living it up, and they okay. and I was approached by one of the editors. Do you maybe want to write something along following that theme? And I said, I, I said, okay, I'll think about it. And I thought about it. And these the these years when I was uh, a young man, and um, I'd been in a band, but that had broken up. I was sort of kind of trying to get my life together. I was working as a substitute teacher, and I was tending to my mother, who was very ill. Um, I, I started to think about this time in my life and thinking I'd want to write about it. And so I said to the editors, well, uh, you know, if it's not living it up, if, it, if it's more like living very intensely or a moment of a time in your life when you felt life in, in a very pronounced fashion, even if it wasn't necessarily fun. Uh, and even almost transformational. Transformational, right? sure. Yeah. Um, would that would that count? And they said, yes. So I wrote it. And then they ended up changing the theme anyway, but it didn't matter because it, it worked either way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and what was the name of the band? I just want to get that in. Hopefully, we're going to re we're going to revisit that topic later in the, the name episode. of the band was Dung Beetle. Dung Beetle. I mean, I was and in a few bands, but that was the main band. Yes, that was the main band. Yeah. And um, 
that you were what did you do in the band like i was the i was the sort of lead screamer uh sometimes singer uh but also sort of uh do you, you know the Yiddish word tumbler? I was like the guy who was just sort of making things happen, you know? Right, right. Causing a right, racket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like a performance art element to it. Yeah, it Like was. a sincere but raucous, it, I mean, is that fair to say? Like it hit a lot of different emotional, it had a lot of emotional range to it, at least in your mind. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, yeah, that, I like that you said that, <laughs> at least in my mind. I mean, I wanted people to be, to be excited but confused. I yeah, wanted yeah, yeah. I, like a tonal confusion was kind of part of the part of the deal. Right, right. Okay, cool. So I will read now at least a little bit of a lesson for the sub, perhaps the whole thing, depending on the velocity of it. And when was this published in the New Yorker? Like a month ago, right? Right. Okay. I like that uh, police. I like the siren. That's good. I'm gonna start with that. Yeah. Things are pretty gritty around here. I know. I like that. You're at Columbia right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. During my mid-20s, I hit what might be called a bottom. Since college, I'd partaken too liberally in wine and song. Although in this case, the wine was cheap beer and street drugs. And the song was my self-sabotaging punk band. When the band broke apart, I cleaned up and moved back in with my mother. I got a job as a substitute teacher. One period I might be covering a history class, the next running a chemistry lab. I was grateful to the student who said, Mr. Lipsight, I really think you should wear protective goggles during this experiment. I was not as grateful to the one who said, my dad told me all subs are losers. Not all subs, I thought, but quite possibly me. I was eager, in fact, for a quiet, unambitious existence a long, boring, soul-mending sojourn. I didn't foresee that two events would infuse this period with an intensity I haven't quite known since. First came a call from Gordon Lish, the famous fiction editor. I'd received encouraging rejections from his magazine in college, but I'd lost my drive and nerve for writing fiction. Now I began to rediscover it. And after I sent in a new story, he offered me a spot in a private seminar that some considered a cult. I had already, I had already attended 12-step meetings and they'd helped me. So I figured there were good cults and bad cults. My mother, a journalist and a novelist, had reservations about the class, but also seemed happy that somebody had taken an interest in her no longer so promising son. That's relatable. The second event was the return of my mother's breast cancer, in remission for more than a decade and now in her bones. It was a good thing I was home, she said. She needed my help. So began these odd, indelibly heightened few years during which clarifying routine and caregiving replaced the ecstatic murk of earlier days. I subbed and ran errands and went to appointments with my mother. After chemotherapy, her markers would improve, decline, hint at new improvements. She could still manage many things on her own, and then she couldn't, but she reminded herself, but she remained herself throughout. Brave, funny, mean, kind, smart, neurotic, judgmental, depressed, empathetic, annoying, and sometimes when we'd lie beside each other on her bed and talk, 
deeply sweet. We like to discuss the OJ trial. When I was alone, I struggled with my sentences. They were bad, mannered, but maybe they pointed somewhere anew. About 20 of us gathered weekly at an apartment off Washington Square Park. Lish would lecture for five hours or more. Stories, literary theory, philosophy, jokes, reprimands, and exhortations would pour out of him. Afterward, we would read from our work. He'd usually step up. He'd usually stop us after a line or two. Our utterances already stale with stock phrases or feeling. But once in a while, if you'd finally, quote, gotten it, he'd let you read on. And you could hear it yourself. How your prose, because of its strangeness, its differentiation, its, quote, right-wrongness, syntactically fresh but also coherent and honest, had maybe dilated time a little bit. There was talk of time, of fear and desire, of death. Sure, it was a cult, but not the Jonestown kind. More like a Roman mystery cult. I loved it. One day, my mother, worn down by the cancer and the treatment, went to the hospital with chest pains. Mycardial ischemia. Am I saying that correctly? Ischemia? I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> the doctor said her body was shutting down. We were told to say goodbye. My mother, manic, announced that she had no regrets. Also, tiny robed monks were flitting about the hospital room. And could she have some strawberry sorbet? Fear, desire, it all poured out of her, incoherently. Her mind was going and she was in pain. The hospital put her in a palliative coma. She lived another week. Friends and family gathered around her bed. When she died, I called Lish from a payphone on the corner. I'm so sorry, he said. Too young, too young. It occurred to me that they were about the same age. I went back to class the next week. I didn't want to sit around a silent apartment. My mother, the writer, the prodigious talker, would understand. Lish mused on death again. There is never enough time. There is only now in life and on the page. Ask Sam's mother, he snarled, as though angry on my behalf or on hers. Was I offended that he'd used my grief as a teachable moment? I wasn't. But I did feel myself float weirdly above the proceedings. Even in my numb state, in this baby stage of bereavement, the truth about the precarity of our lives rippled through me with a deep, gentle electricity. I had, quote, gotten it. I'd forget the lesson soon enough. So wow, Gabe, you really, you read that wonderfully. Thank you. It's a beautiful piece of writing. You know, I was like... When I encountered that, actually, you know what happened? My mom texted me and she said, Sam Lipside's got a piece in The New Yorker. And then her next follow-up tweet was like, have you ever heard of Gordon Lish? And I was like, what is this? And I like dived into it. So, yeah, no, I think, uh, and you ever consider writing uh, longer, uh, you know, like it, in a fiction or out of fictional manner or nonfiction manner about that time in your life? I hadn't until I wrote this and then, you know, I've started to have thoughts about, I don't know about necessarily just that period, but that maybe I, I've really resisted nonfiction yeah. for the most part or uh, that kind of nonfiction. And, uh, but maybe, I, maybe I, I feel I've gotten to a certain point where I could, I could try it. 
Yeah, I feel like with Gen X, we're sort of in this weird contemplative moment where we're all <laughs> very aware that a few years have gone by and sort of looking back and meditating a little bit on what transpired. Um, so I'm curious, uh, when Lish, when you said that Lish had sent you some nice notes about your work, were you submitting to his magazine, The Quarterly, as an undergraduate? I was, yeah. I discovered it as an undergraduate, sort of just in the local bookstore, yeah. and uh, became obsessed with it. I don't know if you were Same. into it. Yeah. Uh, like, I really looked out. So I took my first creative writing class with Ben Marcus, your colleague there at Columbia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, it was incredible. I mean... Not only did we have like Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son, Tim O'Brien's, the things they carried, I had never read those books. Um, but you also had like Zimzum, and then like his book, The Age of Wine String, came out that yeah. semester. That's right. And then like Christine Scutt's Nightwork, Don oh, Raffle, cool. yeah, and the Year of Books. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, so I was hooked. I was like, oh, you can do this with your life? This is what I want to do, you know? Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So well, I was reading some of those same writers in the quarterly and uh, and feeling that I just I just had this feeling of I want to, you know, there's there are these people writing the way I, I never thought writing could be. And I want to be part of it somehow. Yeah. And how would you characterize the quality of the work that was appearing in the quarterly back then? I, th I think a lot of it was really strong. Much of it was really strange. Yeah. It. Even the stuff that maybe wasn't great had still been edited by Gordon and so had a certain kind of charge to it right. just by dint of his ability to uh, kind of make sentences collide with each other yeah. in an interesting way. Yeah. Oh, another book I must mention is uh, Diane Williams' first book, right? Like, do you remember uh, This Is About the it's Body? About the Body, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, those opening stories... I still think those are like some of the most just extraordinary pieces of prose fiction I've ever. Absolutely. Seen. And a lot of those were in the quarterly as well. So, right. Yeah. And I was thinking I kind of got the feeling from interviews I'd read with her that and she was very candid about it, that like Gordon had edited those pieces pretty significantly. Yeah. Yeah. So so you reached out to him. Coming She's off. now a notoriously uh, severe editor. Right, right. Over at noon. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you reached out to Gordon. And I guess I sh should also mention he was like pretty famous for uh, responding like within a week of. Yes. Yeah. Which was wild because I was down in Texas. I started sending my work in and I got a whole bunch of rejections for a very long time. But they yeah. always came within a week. It was so exciting. And one of my co one of my friends actually got like a handwritten note and I was like, oh my God. And um, before it was all over, I finally did get one piece accepted, but then uh, the quarterly folded and so it wasn't able to appear in print, but that's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, a similar thing happened to me. I, uh, I was getting all of those, I mean, it was a great form rejection. It was like 400 words on a yeah. little slip of paper that was very heartfelt. Yeah, XOXO at the end, right? Yeah, and then if you were very lucky, as you said, you got a little handwritten scrawl, you know, keep trying or something like that. Yeah. And um, and it was true. You sent to all those other literary magazines and they would take six months to, to respond to you. And and the quarterly took a week. Right. And, 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 and so by, it was exciting. I mean, I think by what we were able to assess, the writing in the quarterly was just 
light years ahead of what was appearing for the most part in other journals, at yeah. least to our taste. I mean, yeah. there was like a sonic quality to the writing. I, I still remember being mesmerized by random stories, by writers I don't think I've ever heard of again, but I still think they wrote these weird masterpieces that appeared in there. Yes, um, what was his name? I'm blanking on his name now, like Hickens or something like that. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't think of the first though. Um, there was also a weird one, um, Mother or Mother Dearest. It was like about a cow. It, oh, the William, is it Tester, that yes. William Tester book? Yeah. yeah. I remember reading that excerpt and just being like, this is just so cool. You know, and yeah. this is at the same time Ben is like turning me on to, you know, the collected works of Billy the Kid and all this stuff. So it was just right. really transformational writing, you know. Um, so can you... I'm curious to know about that experience because I've met a lot of people who attended his workshops, his famous workshops where he just talked and for at, at length, but I haven't heard like a lot of specifics about it. I'd be curious to know if there were specific things he said that like really sort of resonated with you or clicked. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I was, I sent him stories and eventually he took a few, um, and then offered me a spot in the class that was meeting, this is a few years later, meeting, as I said in the piece, in an apartment. And um, I went for about, uh, not straight through, but for th about three years, wow. you know, maybe four or five semesters in three years or something. Wow. Um, and I guess that was my graduate school, really. Right, right. And uh, uh, it, I wouldn't call it a workshop, really, because we weren't all sitting around discussing each other's work. He was just talking to us, as I described in the piece. Right. And then at the end of the sort of in the last hour, that's when he would say, you know, he would say something. He would say, Gabe, what have you got? Right. And. It was assumed that we were all working on stuff and had it with us in our notebooks or whatever. And so we were we were then supposed to open up whatever we were working on and start reading. And then uh, he would usually stop you, as I said in the piece, and and sort of talk about you know where where maybe you'd gone wrong or where you were how you were maybe kind of evading your object. And I think that like that was really the first thing that really struck me. It seems obvious. And a lot of the stuff that he taught is stuff that you would learn anywhere else in other contexts, but this is where I learned it. Also it was, incredibly um, inspiring to see somebody just stand up and monologue this stuff with, I mean, I really got the feeling from what I heard that like he believed this stuff with like his whole heart more than anything else. Or that was the impression students got. Yeah, but also also his the whole the monologue itself was a demonstration of prose composition in real time. And so that's kind of what the ultimate lesson was seeing how somebody constructed that as they went. Yeah. Um, so. But a lot of it had to do with, you know, Whatever you put into motion, I mean, this was the, the, the central thing for me, was whatever you're putting into motion in your first sentence, you have to account for in the second. Now, maybe you're pulling something forward. Maybe you're turning away. Maybe you're negating. Maybe you're uh, qualifying. 
but a lot of I, I had felt as a as a writer I wasn't even listening to myself I wasn't paying attention to what I was writing and so I would write a sentence and then I'd sit there like oh what should the next thing be about and then I'd write a set another sentence be oh what should the next thing about be about without realizing that the next thing had to have something to do with what I'd already put into motion right and right. that to me as stupid as it sounds and obvious as it sounds that no one had ever really explained it that way to me before. Right. And so, and when you're talking about move, carrying something forward from the previous sentence, I'm assuming there's a great deal of nuance as to what that might be. It could be like sure, an acoustic that, quality. Yeah, it could or, be a sound. It could be a thing, an object. It could be a ver. I mean, it could be so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. It could be thematic. It, it's a, you know, and, and I think when something is really rich and, and textured, it's all of those things at different in different places. Right. It's like um, doing double or triple the work. Like that yes. sentence is doing a bunch of work. Right. Yes. But making it sort of seem seamless. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I feel like with the sentences that you have been subsequently released into the world, um, it's super clear that you like took all that in and processed it and then were able to did you so the story so, the well, story. i mean just to finish that so yeah. the, the 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 next step with that was once you understood that it was a way to to compose without knowing without knowing exactly where you're going okay and then instead of like planning everything out and then executing it or filling it in like a paint by numbers operation yeah you are actually in that first draft, which is like the discovery draft, figuring out you have a way. I think a lot of people think of the first draft as a way of finding out what you're writing. But with this thinking about it in these terms, you have a way to proceed right. like from sentence to sentence and build and see what it is that you're making. And um, and what I then found is that. Whatever I found myself saying by virtue of this operation was far more profound and honest than what I would have thought of beforehand. Yeah. No. And like, cause when I, if you, for me, at least if I sit and think of an idea, it's usually going to be pretty stupid and derivative. Right. Right. But if I just write and let it sort of come out of the sentences, I might get to something interesting. Yeah. That seems uh, really profound because it's it's giving you a way to operate to move forward. You can you write one sentence, then you carry at least something from that sentence into the next sentence. But at the same time, as I understand it from what you're saying, you retain this deep sense of not knowing what's coming. Yeah. So right. it's that is like a really beautiful place to be in a, as a creator, wouldn't you think? Yes, and and so that that Donald Bartlemy essay, not knowing, was very important to me as well. In, in yeah, that sense that you really want to. Look, as you get pages into something, you can't help but forecast. You can't help but start planning what's going to happen and where, you know, how the drama is going to be constructed and, and where things will converge and so forth. But the more you can forestall that, the more you can push that away in the beginning and just clear space for you to kind of create uh, a landscape for yourself to operate in, the better, I think. And you've been incredibly productive over the years. You know, I've known you from the jump, like with Venus Drive, your first story right. collection that I loved pieces. Actually, I used to teach that in Korea to my students. Um, 
And you've been very productive over the years. And to some extent, would you attribute that to this process you're describing? Because you're not scared necessarily of the void of the blank page per se, because you could just lay down a sentence and be like, my next job is to carry something forward from it to the next sentence. Yes, I think that's been a big help in avoiding, you know, writer's block or, you know, I think that whenever I have been unable to proceed, it's because I've forgotten this and think I have to come up with some brilliant idea. Right, right. And it's and funny then, how the mind does that to yeah, itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, what There was a term I, I devoured every interview I could find of uh, Gordon Lish back in the day. Um, and there was one term he just talked about at length, this notion of recursion and torque. Yeah. And I, I've never known precise. I was wondering if you if that re- rang a bell or is that just something he said one day or? No, he talked, he had different terms for it at different times. I yeah. think when I was studying with him, he, he called it consecution on the swerve. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? But I, you know, I, I, again, I th- and he always said, hey, I'm not making this stuff up. You know, this is, you know, he kind of grabbed stuff from all, from, you know, different kinds of theory and, and criticism and philosophy and, and, tried to apply it to an idea about about writing um it's what i just described actually right. it's just this notion that you know you got you write a sentence the next sentence has to come out of that sentence and the next sentence comes out of that sentence but they can't just sort of repeat each other right or you have to then start to create tension by saying something and then maybe you'll say, amplify it and then the third time you'll you'll negate it a little bit or dis, or disqualify it somehow. Right. Or, and then that creates what he would call torque, which is a kind of tension just in the line. It's, it's that surprise when somebody says something and then immediately denies the thing they just said. Right. And helping changes it, you know, let me tell like one example was, you know, let me tell you, let me tell you one thing about me. There are two things about me. You know, that's yeah, a yeah, yeah. simple yeah. version of it. But that that that's sort of the idea. It's so cool. So in a weird way, I mean, to my mind, it sounds almost like he because he was taking he was sampling from different places. He was recontextualizing words, making new words, new terms. It was really making art to yeah. teach you how to make art. Is that? Yeah, I think that's that's right. It was a kind of. It was creative pedagogy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious. Of the stuff that you learned are there, I mean, you know, you're like a beloved professor in the MFA program at Columbia University. Is there stuff from that experience you've carried forward or are there new things that you've created using his example that you teach? Well, I think that I, you know, he's he was a huge influence on my teaching. for Sure. There I've had other teachers as well. Yeah. And they, they were an influence. And then that you're so then I think it's the same as a writer. It's like there's no real originality there's just this fresh and maybe counterintuitive combination of influences and and so as a teacher that's i have this specific combination that comes and that that's what i have to give my own spin on everything that i've been taught right and so sure i use i use a lot of those things but they don't you know they don't always work for everybody and and then they there are certain kind of kinds of writers who do can plan everything in advance and write beautifully, write beautiful books. And so this is not to say there's like one way to do it. It's right. just, this is, this is a way to do it for someone who, you know, gets stuck 
Yeah. And for someone who gets twisted up with ideas and maybe wants to get away from ideas for a little while. Right. Because what I always say, and this was not necessarily from Lich, but this was my own experience, was we do have I we do have ideas. We do also have the things that are meaningful to us. And if we do follow the surface, the stuff that we care about will bubble up no matter what. Yes. Yes. I I feel like I don't need I've learned who I am through writing. Like I yeah. thought I knew, but I didn't. And then when it came burbling up like that, as you described, after some exploration, it was a bit of a surprise to me, but it felt so true in the moment yeah. as I composed it. And um, that might be the most exciting, one of the most exciting feelings you can have when you're writing. Well, that's the, that's what hooks you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the drug. <laughs> So did you write all, and what was uh, the, I'm sorry, the name eludes me, the wonderful small press uh, that your first book came out with? Open City. Open City, which I used to revere. Um, And those stories, had you written those in Licious Workshop? No, those were the stories I wrote when I finished Licious Workshop. When I finished Licious Workshop, I was like, I I know what I want to do. I know how, I, I think I know how to go, but I haven't done it. And I struggled, still was still struggling. Yeah. And, and I was writing and struggling. And then I started writing this one story. It's in that first book. It's called uh, Old Soul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm writing it. And, and I remember so I was just sitting there and thinking, oh, this is what he was talking about. This is now I get it. Yeah. And um, it just felt different. I saw that it wasn't. I mean, even when I was following the following sort of the procedure, the so-called procedure, what was coming out before was very kind of mannered and and awful. And right, right. It was almost like I always likened it to. I don't know if you played any sports, but um, I played a lot of sports. I was kind of a jock. I was a big soccer. I was like a soccer guy, which is weird because I was tall, but I was like a big soccer guy. Well, I can see that. Yeah. Um, Tall is good in soccer now. As a sweeper. The only thing that was bad about it, Sam, is for uh, for every corner kick, everybody start calling my name like I'm some kind of great athlete. Like I go running up for the yeah. corner kick. Of course, I scored like two goals off my head my entire career. And then I got to sprint all the way back to the backfield and the goalie will punt it out. And I got to head that sucker. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now they tell you not to head the ball. Right. Yeah. No one told us back then. Uh, so I always likened it to, you know, changing your batting stance. So you, you could you could hit pretty well. And then someone says, well, you could hit a lot better if you change this, this, and this. And then you do. And then you're terrible for a long time. Right. Until you get your new thing going. And then you can be better than you were. I love that. So it's like... The technique, adapting to the new technique that you've been instructed on, you've just got to like iterate, keep doing that, despite the fact that what you're producing may be even worse than what you were yeah, doing before. Yeah, it was worse. Yeah. So it takes before a- then, I'd gotten, I had enough tricks up my sleeve that I could write passable, you know, pat on the head, like, oh, that's a nice story. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> Did that feel good? I feel like everybody needs to feel that in life at least once or twice. That's no, a nice I, like, story. I, like, no, I mean, I liked it, obviously. But, you know, I didn't, I wasn't satisfied. Yeah, yeah. And so then you started, and when you left the workshop, was that a 
challenging decision or did you know your time was there? Was he surprised? It was funny. I never, I, because he stopped, he ended, he stopped teaching at that point. And then he came back years later, but that was the end of the road. So I don't know. I never was never faced with that. Oh. Okay. problem of having to say I've graduated, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like leaving a therapist or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't have to declare myself because the whole thing sort of ended. Right. That's, I think that's fortuitous. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, were there any other writers that were your side mates during that time that you might want to note who we would like, we'd love their work today. I mean, there was like so many writers like Noe Holland, right? Yeah, I mean, some of the ones that you were talking about were a little bit before my time. Okay. So the, Noi Holland, and I, I knew her. I mean, I knew her, but not from the class. I knew her through the class, but she wasn't in the class when I was there. Right. And her husband, Sam Michelle, whose book I liked a lot. Yeah. And, and um, Gary Lutz. And he had been, well, Gary L., yeah, she'd been there earlier. Um, uh, Victoria Riddell had been there earlier. Uh the other, uh, the others uh, that you wait. Anyway, yeah. a bunch. Of, but the people that I w- that were there when I was there that um, that have written work that I think is great is uh, are include uh, Michael Kimball. Yes. You know, yeah. yeah. And Will Eno, the playwright. I love. I got to hang out with Will a lot yeah. at Princeton. In yeah. fact, when we were hanging out one night. I told him all about like how I think he knew I was a fan of yours. I told him how I'd worked with Ben Marcus. He's like, I meet this was way, you know, a long time ago. He was like, I meet uh, Lish like once a week for like an afternoon lunch or something. You should come in. He goes, you know what? Let me call him. And he called him. Yeah. And I talked to him for like 15 minutes. And it, I just thought this is I, it felt like I like my life. This is amazing. You know, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, Will is Will is a genius and he's a really good person yes yeah and super funny rare rare combination yeah okay do you do you want to set the book up just a little bit for folks um well sure i you know this is a book that uh i started uh, maybe in 2019 and then really wrote during the pandemic but um it was my, I had written a little bit about my time in the early 90s playing in bands and living on the, in the East Village and sort of, um, I'd never really uh, plunged into it though. Yeah. And the way, and the way, and someone actually brought this up recently, the ways I'd written about it in the past had been with a certain kind of, I think, cold detachment maybe because it was too close. Right, right. And I sort of, I think I wanted to revisit uh, some of those experiences and some of that, you know, it's not autobiography, but emotional autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that, emotional With a little bit of, with a, a little bit of the, you know, a sense of humor that maybe age brings you. Right, and, right. And, and a kind of, you know, a tenderness about about youth. Yeah, and so there, there's and a so lot that, of emotion. that was sort of what motivated me. And so it's a book about I mean the, the, the basic setup is a this guy named Jonathan who who is now 
going by the name Jack Shit. He's in the band The Shits. Um, wakes up one day and finds that his bass, he's the bassist, and the lead singer of the band, who is his roommate, are gone. And then he soon finds out that the lead singer is, uh, has stolen the bass and is trying to sell it, probably for drug money. And Jack goes on a quest to, across the city to find his bass and to find his roommate and to you know save the band. And in doing so, reveals a kind of underbelly of corruption and violence, you know, that are endemic to the time and place. And that I think really resonate today. I mean, yeah. to me, it felt like you were doing a beautiful job of talking about the way that the tentacles of that stuff touched us or touched people in that era. But you might not know the total apocalypse that's coming in the future. Exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I say, at least for myself, like, try to write your novel like it's a short story collection. Try to write your short story collection like it's a novel. You know, I mean, I like when they, with that attention to detail in a novel. And I really feel like this is sort of, this sort of like supreme Gen X novel. And it's so beautifully done with great feeling and grief and, and hilarious and tightly plotted in a way that maybe I hadn't associated with your work before, which you know I love your previous yeah, work. Yeah, no, I don't I'm not insulted. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious, like, what, um, how did you hit those beats or, or what did, obviously it must have been deliberate on your part, like, were you sort of cueing off of somebody like Raymond Chandler or how were you hitting those? Because it's, it's, God, it's such a great novel and you do not want to stop reading it. Well, I really, I mean, I don't know if I studied detective novels or noir novels per se, but certainly I have, that's one of my favorite genres of film. Yeah. And so I've, you know, seen a million of those and, and absorbed them. And I really made a, uh, a decision that I was going to, you know, in the past, I, I'll be honest, I, play, I have played very loose with, with the clock yeah. in past novels. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and usually I'll just write, you know, a few days later or a week later, and I'm not really, you know, exactly sure. But, um, and that's an amazing technique unto itself, though, right? Yeah, like, that's right. very, like, Dennis Johnson, Jesus' son, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that gets you a lot and creates a, its own kind of momentum, for sure. But this time, I was saying, I said to myself, I, you know, kind of set these strictures. I understood that this was happening in a week. And, like, I, and I knew which week it was. And I looked at the calendar from 1993, and I looked up weather reports from, 19, from those days in 1993, so I would know exactly sort of what was happening and what was happening in the news in that week in 1993. Right. And, um, and I, knew, I knew that I wanted it to end with a certain weather event that had actually occurred and was very meaningful to me. And so I, you know, I basically oriented the thing towards that. Yeah. And, and, um, and so that was, there were just different kinds of rules in writing this. There was a, it was just a, a tighter frame and I had to really operate within it. And so that kind of compression, you know, they always say like constraint is a form of liberation. Yeah. Ulipo thing, like that enabled you to sort of plot it more tightly. Is that fair to yes. say too? Yeah. Yeah. I could control these things and control the momentum, control the escalation. Yeah. And it was all contained and, and coherent. Yeah. 
Did you uh, feel in this book there was less backstory than you typically use or about the same? I, I'm not I think sure. I, got, I think I got enough in there. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, there is a middle section where he goes home and we right. get we get even more. So um, I, I sort of really planned for a lot of it to come out in that interlude. Yeah. But for the the, the other sections, there, there are a lot of asides when he might talk about his past and talk about past events. But um, I wanted the thing to always, you know, to move like a shark, you know, yeah. to always it, be moving. Yeah, it totally moves like a shark. I mean, it's like a, I really, th- I was like, this is like a perfect book. I mean, do you, obviously you've made it, so you have all different kinds of feelings, but I hope, you, did you feel very excited about this when you were composing it during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the book I'd written before had been much more sprawling mm-hmm. and used a lot of different perspectives and um, and there are things in there I love, but I, I was very excited about about being able to really see all the corners here. And, right. And, and, um, and I felt like, you know, it did its job. Yeah. That was, a, that was a good feeling. And it also, like I said, I think it engaged almost in the way that pulp fiction used to or like, you know, spy fiction or whatever, you know, in PI fiction with really heavy, big social issues. But it yeah, that's, it in what this... that's what those genres are about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was like a, such a pleasure to read. So I'm just going to read this. I'm, like, I go mean, ahead. No, no, just to add to that. I mean, I knew, I guess this goes back to what we were talking about before. I knew that, you know, gentrification was a big part of it. You know, the change, societal change, the emergence of a certain figure I won't name. Right, right. Here. Uh, I knew that was all going to happen in the book. But I, instead of thinking like, what do I think about these things and how, you know, what are going to be my big profound thoughts about these things? I just thought, thought they can linger at the edges. The readers will understand them. I just need to, to move the story forward. Right, right. So I'm just going to read this opening part. Uh, the main character's name, he has just recently changed his name to Jack Shit. Uh, as Sam said, uh, his band is The Shits and his former name was Jonathan. Um, So I'm just going to read this like little passage where he's in his place and this sort of like sets the book on its way. I donned my thermals and various sweaters and shirts. My mother taught me the laws of layering early in life and step out into the frozen bleakscape. My city is a tundra. The wind whips in off the river like the river is one of those cold, cool dominatrix chicks just doing it to finance her complet degree. And the wind is, for instance, a whip. It's an incredibly, it's an incredible sentence. Cutwolf's sister, Drusilla, was a dom for a time until she dropped out of the pain game to become a serious cake maker. That's not even a euphemism. She's on the American fondant team, flies to Antwerp for major competitions. Can I ask you about like the acoustic quality of your sentences? I mean, is that, I mean, they really do have such great sound. I notice you don't use a lot of contractions. Is that right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it, that annoys some people, but yeah. Not me. <laughs> like, how did you, because I feel this is your style. I've even seen like other younger writers, like, you know, who had been influenced by you kind of writing in this mode. How did you find this? Or like, when did this come to you? The lack of uh, 
conjunctions or, just or that in to... like the acoustic quality of your sentence just like i feel like your sentences are very recognizable like i would know your writing if i came across it right okay well i mean some of it the the conjunctions thing is just that i became very interested or you know when, when i was writing my first stories in compression we were talking about compression before and i noticed that some writers really wonderful short story writers like leonard michaels you know that right. was that was something that you know they sometimes did was you know just skip certain kinds of certain expectations about you know when an and would appear right and see what happens it's still grammatically you know feasible and correct right and you know do you remember that show name that tune yeah yeah uh, you know I can name that tune in five notes. I can name that tune in four notes. Well, at some t when I was working with this idea of compression, it was always, you know, can I write this sentence in three notes? You know, I was just yeah. trying, and not just about being minimalist, but just sort of about, I still wanted a lot of stuff in there, but I wanted it squeezed tighter together. Right. Which is the uh, so Which is different than just being spare. Right. Certainly, yeah. certainly. Yeah. And also does have something in common with like the impulse behind uh, stand up comics. Right. I mean, they're always yeah. trying to carve syllables out of their stuff, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's getting it's really a question of getting the stitching closer together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing with the acoustics is, yes, I'm always thinking about that. I'm, that's what a lot of my revision is. A lot of rewriting is is that. So. You know, even that sentence, that last sentence you just read, you know, I remember that I I actually knew a woman who was on like a, or a guy who was on a, I think it was like a f national fudge team. I mean, yeah. I think he like flew, I remember being <laughs> struck by this when I was 26, like this guy makes fudge and like flies around the world to competitions. And, um, you know, I didn't make, I wanted a different word than fudge and I got fun. Right. And, then, and then where does he go? Well, I've got this really peculiar word, Fonda, right there, right? You know, I don't know how many cities I tried in that sentence, but Antwerp plays off the acoustic properties of, of Fonda in this way. And, yeah. and so suddenly you have this charge that we're talking about. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, do you have an Antwerp reference in your first book of stories? I may. Yeah. I like that word. <laughs> been an honor sincere honor to talk to you i'm so happy to see you thank you gabe it's really it's been really great talking to you i really appreciate it okay so that was amazing right had a total blast rapping with sam what a mensch okay so now is when you go buy sam's novel no one left to come looking for you and if you look in the show notes for this episode you'll find a link to buy his book online at bookshop also in the show notes you'll find a link to buy his fabulous new novella, A Friend of the Pod, at the Gagosian Gallery. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the essay that Sam referenced in the interview uh, that he wrote about helping his dad with his book and sort of being an archivist. And lastly, you will find a link to Sam's old hardcore art band dung beetle performing and i highly recommend that you go click on that and listen to that and listen to sam it's extremely on point 
Also, if you want to come say hi online, you can find me on Twitter at Gabe Hudson. I'm also on Instagram and threads. I'm at Gabe G Hudson. Also on Blue Sky. You know, I'm on all the places. Now, if you want to go sign up for our newsletter and support the show, go to Substack and find Kurt Vonnegut Radio. It's free, but there's also an option to throw some coin our way. If you like the show, you want to support us. We offer this show for free for the people. But if you're in a position to offer support, please know we super appreciate it. Each week, we deliver one episode of podcast goodness, sometimes two. And if you can't afford to make a contribution, you can always support us by rating and reviewing the show on Spotify or Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. We read all your reviews. And if you write a good one, then you might hear me read it out loud on the show. Jude Brewer was executive producer and editor for this episode. Stay safe out there, people. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week.